I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we are actually recording face-to-face this week with Gary Link, who drove down to Atlanta to chat with us about what it means to be an official in junior tennis in the United States. And I'm so thrilled to have Gary here. He and I go back a ways. He officiated an event that my son played back in high school, and uh, we may or may not tell that story (laughs) in the course of the next little bit. But um, I I had posted on the Parenting Aces Facebook page and in our Facebook group that I was going to be interviewing Gary and asked you guys to post some questions for him. And y'all did not disappoint. You sent in some great questions. And I hope we can get to most, if not all, of them today. But uh, without further ado, let me get Gary to introduce himself here. So, Gary, thanks so much for being here. Lisa, thank you so much. I um, I really appreciate uh, you um, inviting me here and also being able to look at it, um, look at tennis from the eyes and lenses of an official. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about how I got started. This is my 21st year of being a an official, and most of my officiating has been in the junior and adult um, tournaments and also just an ambassador for tennis. Um, I was in software development, software design. And whenever the um, USTA decided that they wanted to go into using software that we, some of us may know it as TDM, some of us may know it as Tournament Data Manager, and that's the software that obviously looks at our seating, look at our scheduling, and um, so I kind of got in on the cusp of that software era where basically USTA was using that software to manage the tournaments. And uh, helping and assisting the tournament directors with their uh, ap- with the application, uh, it basically pulled me in and wouldn't let me go. And um, I really, really enjoyed being around the kids. And here I am, 21 years later, and I just uh, really enjoying the game. Really enjoying spending time with 10 year olds that are that have been in the game for a couple years since they're eight. Um, and regardless of what you think about green dot ball or orange ball or, or regular yellow ball uh, when you see those kids that are out there playing and they're smiling and they're having fun they're 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 really competing um, and to come see them come off walk off the court it's basically just self-satisfying knowing that you're in the right place as far as what you're doing and you know for the game of tennis that's awesome and let me just say for my listeners we are sitting at Goldberg's Deli in Decatur Georgia so the music you hear in the background the clatter of dishes and whatever <laughs> I apologize but such is the life when you're recording live. All right, so let's jump in to some of the questions. And and maybe I think where to start with all of this is for you, Gary, to give the listeners a little bit of information about what it takes to become a junior tennis official. What kind of training, what kind of reading, what kind of mentorships or, or internships do you guys have to go through? It's a very interesting question, Lisa. Uh, one that right now we're in the midst of... Um, developing uh we as in usta um they are developing a pathway for officials 
to uh, identify where you're starting and also the different types of steps along the way, whether it be uh, a roving official or whether it be a referee or whether it be a chair official or whether it be a lines person that you see uh, at the U.S. Open or Cincinnati or, or Indian Wells. They are in the process, they being USDA, uh, have, uh, are developing that pathway even today as we speak. Um, and when I got into it, when I got into tennis, like I mentioned before about the software um, and started looking at the computer systems and operations from that perspective, um, basically you didn't have any type of test uh, other than you took a certain uh, 25 questions and then you got into it. Now what uh, you're doing is everything is online, whereas probably five years prior, um, you actually visited face-to-face with an instructor, and then you went through uh, a classroom setting, be it a beginner-type official. You had to actually go through the introduction, and then also the advanced class always happened the next day. So you went through that class. You actually saw, saw films. You saw videos of different types of conditions, situations, and then you were basically um, given an open-book test to determine whether or not um, you were competent with the with the uh, material to be able to um, officiate a junior or a, or a junior uh, tournaments. And so, were you expected to study the rule, the friend at court, the rules of the game, um, and wh- know that we were we were expected to. Um, uh, one thing I l- really liked about their testing is that they did a question, and then right after that question, you would have a follow-up question of where did you find that within the friend at court. So you could not just on a whim say, yes, I do know that the net is 36 inches high. Um, you had to actually back that up and say it was on page number 18. It was under article number one. And so you basically had to go in the book and you had to read it. Now, that was... You know, back um, th- uh, probably 2000 and, uh, 2012 or probably 2014 and earlier. Okay. Um, but now recently what we have done over the last two years is we have a USTA Education Center, and that's where we do all of our testing and all of our uh, video review online. Okay. And, and let me just say, you're, you are on the USTA officials committee for... For USDA National or for Southern? No, just for state, for South Carolina. Oh, for South Carolina. Yeah, for South Carolina. So okay. I am one of four uh, members of the officials committee um, that's with South Carolina, which is headed up um, by my good friend um, Al. Uh, and um, so we are, every year, we look at different ways of, of getting better, uh, and we know we can get better. And I know the parents and the coaches know we can get better. And obviously that uh, surrounds um, uh, is surrounding a lot of consistency and application of the rules in its most consistent form. Okay. And you're also on the Junior Comp Committee for USTA South Carolina. Is that right? Yes. I'm a, um, I'm a member of the Junior Competition Committee for South Carolina as well as I'm the chair of the Adult Competition Committee. Um, so even though, you know, that may sound like a lot, um, it basically gives us the opportunity to be able to provide some value, um, be it junior competition, adult competition, officiating. It does give us a lot of insight into what you, the, the, your listeners are looking from a parent's perspective or from a, uh, from a coach's perspective. What do we need to do to take their voice back into those rooms and uh, voice that concern? 
So I have to ask you, and I think this question was posed tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not. Do officials have to pass an eye exam? They do have to pass an eye exam. It's it's a two-year exam, and every two years we're required by USTA to submit a vision form. That vision form has to be signed by an optometrist. Okay. And um, and from there, it is submitted into USTA for validation. And from that point on, um, you know, we're cleared from not having clear vision and not having optimum vision, but we are cleared to be able to officiate uh, for the upcoming year. Got it. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, that, it was a funny question when I saw it. I kind of giggled, but but really, that's a thing. That is a thing. Uh, I've been uh, <laughs> I've been uh, refereeing uh, tennis for 21 years. I've been refereeing basketball for 31 years. And um, I have always been told um, that I may want to get a few, a, a, a few pair, pair a few pair of glasses. <laughs> so I've heard that more than once. Yeah. And uh, so yes, it is a thing. It is a thing. All right. Well, so you touched on the whole idea of consistency, and I think most of the questions that I received had to do with that. That every time you go to a junior tournament, it seems like the officials operate in different capacities. And I know, you know, we felt that when when my son was playing junior tennis. You know, you'd go to one tournament and the officials were all about really educating the kids and, and giving warnings and explaining things to them. Whereas you'd go to another tournament and the officials were all about, you know, no warnings, you break a rule, you get penalized, and boom. And it's not that one's better than the other. It's, I think, the frustration over not knowing what to expect when you show up to play a match. Now, obviously, the best course, I would guess, is you go on court and you are on your best behavior and you follow every rule to a T, and then it's irrelevant what mm-hmm. kind of officiating is happening. Right, right. But we all know in the real world that's not what happens. So can you talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I can talk to, uh, you know, I, I'm also a spectator. Not only am I an official, but I'm also a spectator. So I see the application of the rules being somewhat inconsistent from this city to the next city or from even from a tournament to a tournament within the same city. Um, and so we as officials, we absolutely have to do a better job in the consistency and the application of the rules. And it's not just knowing the rules, it's how to apply the rules. Right. It, it, and some of the time, Lisa, it gets to the point where do you feel confident enough to be able to in- insert yourself into a situation where a person drops a racket? Is that a thrown racket or is that a dropped racket? Um, are they doing it in anger or are they not doing it in anger? Um, so the, the amount of leash or the amount of um, type of um, uh, looseness that official can give that player, um, it is going to basically look differently um, from his eyes or his lens to say, okay, did he drop it or did he throw it? And I think we all know when there's a drop and when there's a throw. Um, Some officials, uh, they're very uh, anxious. They don't want to get caught up into a combative situation. Um, And obviously we've been told we do not want to make to, to determine the outcome of a match, and nor do we. And I don't think any coach or any of your listeners want us to be in a 
position to make a decision that would actually affect the outcome of, of but what we are striving for is consistency and that consistency is basically a very difficult task for us and I'm very blunt very honest um, that's one thing that as our young officials are coming up we need to educate them more we need to put them through conditions through situations through different scenarios and then we need to educate them on what not to do and what to do uh, because it can be overbearing you know as you mentioned before we can be basically cross over the line and put them on extremely defensive all the players can be very uneasy and very uncomfortable which is going to affect their play or we can sit back and we can watch and then they get frustrated because they don't see any of uh, any one of us which we they we're in our blue shirts we're in our USTA caps we're walking around the court but we we look as if we're not educated enough to be able to insert ourselves into a situation where we need to be inserted um, that that obviously bothers me and it obviously bothers your listeners, bothers your players and your parents. Um, I can tell you that that's one thing from a southern South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Louisiana. It doesn't matter where you're from. And, it, and even in the other sections, um, that's something that we're battling with and something that we are striving each year. And likewise, we will never know of those situations where we need to get better if we do not listen, we do not hear from the, the parents or the players. And I'll stop there for a moment to say I think we'll probably hear a lot from the parents because we do know that parents are very passionate and we want them to be passionate. We do not want them to sit idle and just sit there and um, basically just uh, act as if they're in some type of very nonchalant event but we do want them to engage but engage properly we want them to praise we want them to applaud and then whenever there's a situation where they do not feel that it's that their child has been uh, treated fairly that needs to be brought to the referee and i know that that is a very difficult thing for some of our children to do some of our kids are on the court and they're not able to break away because they're, they feel like, A, they don't know if they can break away from the court. They don't know if they can leave the court. And two, they may be playing their best friend or their doubles partner. Or they may be playing someone that they know very well. And they don't want to create any type of anxiety or any type of frustration or any type of combative situation. And um, But we want to be able to address those issues. We want to be able to identify those from the official's perspective and be able to get better each year. Well, so along those lines, what is the rule about summoning an official to the court? Is it only the player, him or herself, who's allowed to do that, or are the parents allowed to summon an official? It, it's only the players. The only the only one that can actually summon an official to the court is the actual players. Um, but I will tell you this. If I have a situation where a parent t- tells me while I'm roving in a totally different area and they come to get me, I can't go to that court if they say, I need you to go to court number nine. And just so happened, court number nine is where their daughter or their son is playing. I can't go to court number nine. But I will tell you this. I will keep number nine in the back of my head. And I will absolutely visit that court. I may not be standing on that court unless the, unless the players uh, ask me to be on the court. 
But if I'm visible, and that's what I, that's one thing I really want to be, is I want to be visible. I want all my officials to be visible, and I want to give those players an opportunity to engage us when we need to be engaged. Uh, we do not want to engage ourselves too early, and obviously we don't want to do it too late. But a, play, a player can only – and it, I don't know if you're – I'm sure most of your listeners, especially your coaches, know this – is that they can a player can leave the court to go get an official. Uh, they can leave a court to go to the restroom, and they can also leave the court to uh, basically fix some type of attire or, or some clothing malfunction. So they can leave the court and go get an official. Okay, and that's important. I mean, parents, if you don't know that and if your child doesn't know that, please make sure that they know that before they go play their next tournament. It's I mean, it's kind of one of the basic things that they need to know when they're engaging in competitive tennis, right? I mean, you got to know the rules. You have to know the rules, <laughs> and you also have to make, you know, and one thing I do is when I go to the court, and mo- hopefully most of my peers and my fellow officials do the same thing, is that whenever we're called to the court, when we walk on the court, we want to be your friend. We do not want to be the policeman. We do not want to be someone that's basically, you know, looking over your shoulder and waiting for you to make a mistake. That's not what we're there for. We're there as an aid for you to ask us any questions that might help you through the through the match. Um, and we want to be a resource for your son or your daughter. And we do not want to be, you know, because we're in a blue shirt or because we're in khaki pants or just because we, we look official, we're very human. And we're, we're people just like the players are people, and we're human just like parents are human. And believe it or not, we are going to make a mistake. And I cannot tell you how difficult it is for to be on a court and try to keep up a score. A lot of people would say, it's so easy for you to keep a score in a match. Well, if you're looking, you st- and I'm human, so if I'm on the court and I'm watching two kids really going at it and they're in, into their 18th rally point, I'm getting caught up into that point just like they, the, the parents are. So is it 30-15 or is it 40-love? You know, and so and there's times where I catch myself going like, I need to stay concentrated. I need to concentrate. I need to focus because I get wrapped up in it as well. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to do. For Very sure. easy to yeah. do. I, I played a doubles match this morning, and so there are four, four of us on the court. And you better believe we changed the score after every single game because none of us <laughs> trusted ourselves <laughs> to be able to remember two whole games before yes. we changed ends again. Yes. So it happens. Um, you touched on the consistency issue, and I think most of the questions that I received from, from my followers had to do with consistency. And the fact that, again, you know, sometimes an official will give a warning. Sometimes an official will go right to a point penalty or coding the player. Is there a, an underlying rule around that that y'all are supposed to follow, or is there discretion there? How does that work? I mean, explain explain to the audience, you know, where where the line is and what kind of flexibility the officials have in that regard. Yeah, well, let me address, first of all, is that whenever we see uh, a situation that is... Um, whether and we know that it's it's a very flammable situation that's getting ready to occur. It doesn't have to occur 
for us to engage or insert ourselves. Okay. We know that there's been some type of you know loud voice or there's been some type of audible um, something that you can hear at court nine, you can hear it from court two. So um, officials, what we do is we are drawn to that. We know exactly that there's something going on on court number nine. And when if we're doing our job and doing it correctly, we're going to stay close to that. I want to address your question regarding is there a protocol or is there a process that we go through to determine whether or not is there any type of leniency that we give to players. Um, there's no leniency that we give to players um, that are over and beyond the line. Um, what is it called, the line? There's no such thing that you'll ever be able to find in a book or a friend at court uh, that there's no such thing as what's called the line. But what we do is when we go to a, to a court and we see that a child is misbehaving, I had a situation just this past weekend where a child had basically was, was taking his racket and was beating his racket two or three times on the court. Is that codable? In my eyes, it's not codable. I'm going to basically tell him, I don't want to see that again. Then I'm going to code him. And you can almost say that's a warning. Mm-hmm. It's, a soft, it's a soft warning. And basically, I want to give the player an opportunity to let him know that to correct his error. And but there's some things that you cannot uh, give a soft warning for. Um, you can't give a soft warning for a person that throws a racket. Okay. You can't give a soft warning for any type of situation where there's obscenity or profanity. Um, you know, if someone's doing hand gestures or finger gestures, anything like that, we don't do anything as far as any soft warnings. But we do try to give the benefit of the doubt. It's the heat of the moment. You you have to remember, there's emotions that are running high. Parents' emotions are running high. The officials, we're human, and our emotions are running high. So what we want to do is I tell all of my officials, as the players elevate, we actually decelerate our emotions. And that's very difficult because you're asking us to be someone other than being personal and human and having those type of behaviors is that as the parents get louder and as the parent as the players get louder in their tone we get softer because um, and so if we need to insert ourselves into a match we will and that's where we need to gain more consistency in making sure that the protocol or the process that we follow is that between a soft warning and basically a code violation is that we need to apply that consistently. And that's what you see in a lot of the tournaments. And you and I, I can hear one of your listeners saying right now is that not last weekend, last weekend, my the boy the opponent that my son was playing against took his racket and threw it all the way back to the back of the fence and there was nothing done and I looked and and I'm sure there was probably two or three officials that probably could have done something about it that is wrong and that is something that we need to do a better job of and we absolutely that's no soft warning that's absolutely no caution that's an automatic code violation and just as if if someone was yelling an obscenity we would not allow them to get away with it because what we're there for is not just to punish but to also teach you have to remember 
is from an official's perspective, we're teachers, we're counselors, and we also, we're not the judge, the jury, and the verdict. We're also making sure that we're also teachers and we're uh, counselors. We're making sure that we can uh, be fair to both players. And um, uh, one thing we do not want to do is show any type of favoritism. And I know that sometimes the perception is that we do. But I will tell you that um, if I sense any of my officials showing any type of favoritism toward a player that might be in his son's academy or maybe some some other situation where he's connected with, I will pull him from the actual um, from that site, mm-hmm. and I may even pull him from the tournament, regard, depending on the situation. Interesting. Well, I know one of the questions I had when my kid was still in juniors was. Is there, I think there is a meeting of officials at the beginning of a tournament, right? Where y'all talk about, I guess, you know, what the standard is for the weekend and, and how the officials are expected to perform their duties and blah, blah, blah. One of the things that I always wished was that following that meeting, that there be a meeting with the parents and players where the officials could say, we just came out of our meeting and here's how we're running things this weekend. Everybody, you have been forewarned. This is how we're playing this weekend. Why doesn't that happen more? I know there are some tournaments that do that, but why do you think that doesn't happen more? That's a very, very good idea. I think that's something where basically all parents and all players should know exactly what that rule is or what the behavior is going to be from the officials. Um, a lot of listeners on your call, um, on the call today, or actually on the broadcast today, probably doesn't really know what a soft warning is. Mm-hmm. And probably maybe for the first time they've heard of a soft warning. Um, and basically we're just trying to get the benefit of the doubt of the player so that they can concentrate on tennis and not concentrate on the official coming down on them from a disciplinary action. But we need to be more communicative. Um, I know that some of your listeners have to fill out medical release forms. And attached to that medical release form, there's a parent type of um, two or three paragraph that was written from the USTA perspective. Um, I personally think it is probably not worth the paper that it's written on. I don't think it has any value at all. I think that basically uh, every tournament that I'm involved in, um, they go right to the bottom of this of the page and they sign it. Um, if I gave them a test, if I give your parents a test on it, I don't think either one of them could, could pass it. What does it say? Now, what it says is basically, I realize that I'm here for my child and my child is going to be playing the game and I'm not. And basically, <laughs> it's, 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 that's true. <laughs> but I am going to basically support my child. I'm going to praise and I'm going to maybe celebrate my child. But I will not engage as far as showing any bad behavior. Um, we all sign that? We, you all sign oh that. Oh, my gosh. And so, um, so we need to do a better job going back to the actual officials meeting. We do meet in the very beginning where the referee actually looks and uh, he or she has a discussion across all the rovers for that site, not just for that site, but you may be going out to a satellite facility as well, and that's addressed to them as well. How we're going to be able to, is it a five-minute warm-up? How lenient are we going to be with a five-minute warm-up? Are we going to be very lenient on lateness or tardiness? Are we going to be lenient at all as far as any drop of the racket? Uh, As far as uh, restrooms, how close are they to the courts? 
how far away are they to the courts? And so that is a discussion that we all have as an official, as, as officials, as rovers, as referees. But one thing that we need to do is I, I like your idea. I, it sounds like some other tournaments are already doing that. Mm-hmm. Is they're implementing a, a basically an education or a communication type in the very beginning of the tournament, setting the tone. Right. And that's what we want to do as officials to set the tone. We do not want any parent or player to be surprised at actions that we take as officials. That's unfair to the parent. It's very unfair to the to the player, especially to the player, to be able to be very uh, hard and disciplined when they did not receive that same hard and discipline the previous week at, you know, whether it be at another tournament. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter. A lot of people would ask me, well, Gary, does it matter about the level? You know, my child played in a level one last weekend, but they also played in a level two this this weekend. Should I expect any different? No, you should not. Um, It doesn't matter if it's a level four or level one. You should expect the same kind of application to the rules, and you should have the same kind of application as far as the leniency uh, or lack of leniency when there's a situation that uh, requires uh, an official to step in. Well, let's talk about that because the rules are there. I mean, you can print out friend at court. And again, to my listeners, if you and your child don't have a copy of friend at court on you at all times when you're at a tournament, you are making a huge mistake. You need to have that with you. Your child needs to know the rules. You as the parent really need to know the rules as well. But the onus is on your kid and the player. That I mean, they need to understand the rules of the game. But let's, let's say that there's a situation where... Maybe the weather is, you know, the temperatures are extreme. It's very, very hot, and maybe there have been rain delays at the tournament. There are rules in place about how much time a player gets between matches. But when circumstances dictate employing a little common sense and saying, yeah, the rules say we only have to give you an hour between matches, but your last match lasted two and a half hours, and you've already played two of them today. What what kind of leeway do the officials have? The referees, um, the referee obviously it makes the ultimate call. Um, well, for, let, let, so let me back up then. Tell me the difference between a referee, an official, and an umpire. Okay. What you have is you have a referee that's basically uh, over the entire tournament. Okay. Um, then you have what's called a deputy referee. Okay. A deputy referee can is basically an assistant to the referee. Uh, you could also have a, multiple deputy referees that are basically uh, delegated out um, to the different sites. Okay. So if we're if we're having five sites and we're running a level one, level two tournament, and we have to have a certified official there, I have deputy officials, deputy referees that let me use the right term, deputy referees that are located physically at that site. Now I'm going to be the head official that's going to be over the entire tournament, so they may basically ask me for input on a situation that happens at their site. And they also might have a situation where they need some uh, guidance on whether or not to interpret a certain rule. 
Um, that's exactly where I'll come in. Okay. We have a rover. Those rovers are basically, um, they're actually um, uh, allocated to each site as well. Okay. Now, when we're looking at common sense and we're looking at logic and we're looking at the actual friend at court, let's look at friend at court from being a guide. And we're, I'm not talking about a guide from being a third, you know, from the, the net post being so many, so many uh, feet or so many higher, the net post um, being so low. I'm not talking about whether or not we should implore single sticks or whether or not, you know, um, you know what, what are we going to do as far as the, the size of the court. All of those are basically hard and fast rules. But when we get into weather or when we get into rest periods, one thing we need to do is we need to apply logic and common sense. When a child comes off the court, we need to make sure that that child is protected both from injury we need to make sure that the opponent understands that there needs to be a rest period between both players so that there's equality. That's one thing that we need to strive for, and I don't think any any of your listeners would disagree, is that we need to make sure that both players have every opportunity to go into a new match with the same type of rest period or same type of uh, condition now, again, one may have had a long match. One may have had a short match. That's one thing we can't control, will not control, won't control, have no control over it. But yet we do have some controls over applying logic. And we can take the guidelines from the actual tables from the friend at court and apply them logically that when we do have an hour rest period, we do have that authority to exceed that one-hour rest period with a third set 10-point breaker, or if you're applying, uh, if you if we need to apply a rest period, even though it's a two-hour recovery for a full third set, we might go two and a half hours. Now, what does that mean for the tournament? The tournament, we may get behind, or we may have to stay an extra 30, 45 minutes at the end of Saturday night. But guess what? It's worth it. It's worth it to our players. Our parents deserve it. Our players deserve it. Because when you when you play these tournaments, I don't think anyone's paying $3.50 for the whole weekend. They are <laughs> no. paying a lot of money. Right. And they're investing in their child's development. And that all they want is, is fairness of play consistency of officiating and again that's one thing that we're 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 going to be working on and we are working on uh uh, i think across the different sections good good well one of the questions that came in had to do with the age of officials at the events and it seems like tennis officials um it's it's the retiree who loves the game and wants to be around it and maybe their hearing's not 100 percent and Maybe even though they're required to pass a vision test, their vision's not 100%. Their attention span's not what it used to be when they were 20 years younger. Can you talk about that a little bit and what USTA does to ensure that, you know, because it's cool to have these retirees around the game, right? I mean, multi-generational involvement is what we all want for our sport. But at the same time, we want to make sure that they're competent and and uh, knowledgeable and able to perform their duties out there. You're absolutely, especially when it's super hot. You're absolutely correct because there's nothing more than you love to see Mr. Miss Jones. You love to see Mr. Jones out there, and even Miss Jones out there. 
that has been an official for the last 30 years and you know them by name they know your children you know they they even your the your children's children um they've been there so long and they are the ambassadors for our sport but at the same time we want them to continue that passion for our sport and we also want to grow young uh officials um and be able to we still want mr miss jones to be uh engaged but maybe in a different capacity um maybe they want to help us at the desk maybe they want to help us with a t-shirt uh and i can hear some of your um some of your listeners now that may say well i'm 76 year old six year olds and i'm 76 and i'm going on 70 77 and i'm strong as ever and i, I would challenge any 22 year old you know and i do totally get that and I love the fact that because some of my best friends in the the actual um, sport uh, are the ones that are my my uh, 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 my experienced uh, peers that are in their seventies mm-hmm. uh, that basically teach me about life and teach me about the sport and teach me when to engage and when not to engage. But what we have done, and I can only tell you from the state of South Carolina, is that we went from 102 officials in 2016. And we uh, dropped down to 52. What? From 100, we dropped 50 officials from a 102 down to 50. Why? For down to 52. Why did we lose so many officials? We lost so many officials because some of them are aging out, as you as you alluded to. But we're also losing because it is becoming more and more difficult and much more stressful on the adults that are basically being treated misfair uh, being mistreated from parents being mistreated from from players or maybe basically they're standing on their, on their feet for 12 to 14 hours because basically the tournament uh, is on, they only have such a uh, such budget to work with so um, but what we're doing is basically we are growing that official base back up and what we're doing is basically USTA is looking at a pathway and they have already developed that pathway to be able to educate our officials and be able to put them on the road to a successful um, uh, hobby, if you will, uh, to be able to be a better official uh, so that we can follow behind the seasoned veterans that have given so much to our game. Great. Well, another question that came up came up multiple times and phrased in multiple different ways, but has to do with cheating in junior tennis. And, and we know this is a problem that has existed long before I picked up my first racket. Um, it's been going on for generations. But I don't know if it's social media or what, but it, it really does seem to be more prevalent today. And so... I want to ask you about the cheating and what you're seeing out there as an official, but also kind of as a follow-up question, somebody asked, do officials look at the body language of the players to determine who's telling the truth and who's not? And I thought that was such a a clever question. So I'm going to let you talk about both of those things. Well, I think the body language obviously can be obviously misconstrued and obviously we can actually read it wrong um, and... So one thing that we want to make sure of is we want to make sure that everything that we're doing is factual. We want to make sure that everything that we're doing is um, is is not based on our own specific personal agenda. 
Um, whenever we see a player, and I had this situation last October in one of the tournaments I was refereeing in, I had heard that there was an official, uh, there was a player that basically has, was making some incorrect calls. I inserted myself on that court and found it to be true. And I gave them one warning and then another warning. And after I gave them that second warning, I actually coded them for unsportsmanlike conduct. And I did have a conversation with that player afterwards, which was a very, very interesting conversation because all he knew is that he just wanted to win. He wanted to win. And he wanted to win so bad that he was willing to cheat. But he didn't realize that... Um, cheating was going to be such um, a way of routinely every week. And I had this conversation with his dad. I had a conversation with him. And he was basically embarrassed. He was, he was embarrassing his family. He was embarrassing his dad that was with him that day. He was also embarrassing the sport. And after we, you know, we got through talking about it, and this is something that should be covered at home. It shouldn't be covered through an official. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we do have to put ourselves in that place so that we can manage the cheating. But cheating has um, an incorrect line calls because there's so much more pressure today. Juniors are chasing points. Parents are chasing points. They're basically chasing points so that they can position themselves to get into a situation where they can be recruited from a college or more importantly, be able to rise to the next level of tournaments. So basically, they need to position themselves. And I would say, I would venture to say that, you know, a lot of people, uh, the majority of our players are not doing it on purpose. Um, A majority of our players are basically, they see it, um, they think they see something, and they're not going to give their opponent the benefit of the doubt. But one thing that we need to do is we need to give our players, our opponents, the benefit of the doubt. And it's so difficult in the heat of passion and the passion of the moment. It's funny because it's a great segue into me when I was driving to it, right before I was driving to Atlanta. I don't know if you recall, Lisa, but I had sent you an email and you said that you had a league match this morning. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, good luck to you. And when in doubt, call it out. Right. You know, well, when in doubt, call As it out. As a joke. He was joking, I was guys. Just, yeah, just joking. You can't joking. see his face, but it he was, was kidding. It was, it was just joking. But when in doubt, call it in. Right. You know. Uh, so that's what we want to do is we want to make sure that as parents, when you're sitting in that car in that two-and-a-half-hour ride home and your son just lost and they made a call where basically it was in favor of their opponent, that is sportsmanship. That's what we want to teach because there's, there, you know, and I want to get back to your question about cheating. We are seeing it more prevalent today. What is the answer? I think it's going to be opening Pandora's box to determine how do we control it, how do we manage it, how do we get it under control to where basically if someone's spending six and seven and eight hundred dollars for a weekend, is that they're not putting it being put at a disadvantage to be able to win one match in the main draw, go to the consolation, get cheated out of the consolation, and then you're sent home less six hundred and fifty dollars in your pocket what we want we know that the parents and we know that players are investing a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of energy and that's when we see it on the weekends what we don't see is the amount of private lessons and the amount of clinics that you that you as a parent go through the least thing we can do is from an official's perspective 
is make sure that there's fair play. How do we get to that point? Is it the $199 to $200 camera that you set up on a, on, a, on a net post to be able to call the lines for us? Is it realistic that every facility can, can, can budget that? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Um, but should- I think, let me just interrupt, I think if you ask parents, they would say, charge me $10 more or whatever per tournament and have those damn things on the net page yeah, I, every time you know, my something, kid plays. I think you're right. I think it's something yeah. that we need to look at from if we know that it's a fail-proof type system or maybe not a fail-proof, but it gets us to at least a 90% accuracy rate. We know that there's going to be a fail rate. We know there's going to be an error rate in everything that we do. Um, and doesn't matter if you have an Apple phone. doesn't matter if you have an Android platform. There's error rates regardless of what technology that we're in. Right. But what we do need to strive for is there's a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of time invested in 10-year-olds, 18-year-olds, and, and a lot of ages in between. And we need to take a hard look to make sure that we give the parents the value that they deserve through those private lessons, through those clinics, through the equipment. I mean, you know, new rackets are 185 to $229. And that's not counting $60 and $70 for private lessons. So the least thing we can do from a association perspective and from an officials perspective is to look at new innovative ways to be able to look at how can we manage and reduce the cheating. I think as long as we have humans that are playing the game, there will, all be, there will always be opportunity to try to gain an advantage somehow. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm not seeing it, I'm not seeing it on a on a um, on a very purpose-driven level. I'm not seeing that kids are doing it on purpose. But if they are doing it on purpose, we will find them, just like the one that I found, and we will code them immediately if we know that they've been they have a pattern of doing so. Mm-hmm. But coding them doesn't really help the situation because the, their opponents already lost the match, you know, or, I mean, or, or hopefully figured out a way to win despite the bad calls, right? And so I think that's where families really get discouraged. And, you know, there are, and I think there always have been and always will be, certain kids that everybody knows that when that kid goes on the court, you better watch the lines and you better watch the calls because they're going to, at every opportunity, they're going to, you know, call the ball in their favor. And they're allowed to continue to play. They're allowed to continue to enter tournaments and pull that garbage on their opponents week in and week out. And, I mean, I remember going to tournaments with my son and there were certain kids, we'd see their name in the draw and it's like, oh, God, (laughs) here we go. You know, and even to the point where my son would actually go talk to the tournament referee ahead of the match and say, you know, look, we all know the situation here. Can I please have an official on my court from ball one? Yes. And sometimes the referee would accommodate and sometimes not, but... Um, it's a real problem. And, it is a and, real problem. And the fact that y'all know it's a problem, I mean, so acknowledging that you have a problem is the first step toward solving it, right? What is happening, though? Like, in real terms, what what steps is USDA taking to fix this? One thing that the very first step that we do as an official is that at, within 24 to 48 hours of the conclusion of the tournament, we as a referees are required we are required to submit our code violations into the association, uh, regardless of whether, wh- whichever section it is. 
We are required. But the requirement is not enough. Um, some of us do turn them in. Some of us do not turn them in. We do not want to discriminate against any child. We do not want to discriminate against a certain child and call them by name and say, you know, we know that, you know, that um, Jimmy is is a um, uh, is a, a habitual cheater. We don't want to go that far. But when we see a pattern developing from a sectional perspective, whether it be a southern, whether it be midwestern, whether it be whatever section we're looking at, we need to take a hard look at that, and we need to make sure that, in fairness, of the other 99% or the other 96%, is that we need to be fair to them in trying to educate. We need to make sure that we need to take action. And that action is not just through a code violation. Just like you said, once the tournament's match is over, it's over. If they move on to the next tournament, one thing we need to do is we need to take action. We need to take a hard look at some of the habitual type cheaters. We need to be able to get in a room of, um, of logical, sensible um, uh, authorities uh, that are on staff, that are on our junior competition committees, and we need to discuss what our next move is. To deny it that it's that it's happening is a problem that we have. Mm-hmm. We do know that it's, we do know that it's happening. We do know that it's real, and to do nothing about it is an absolute abstrosity. We we absolutely have to be fair to the parents. Again, they're putting eight hundred, seven hundred, nine hundred dollars, right. you know, worth week. of every week. Yeah. And that's not to mention the upcoming private lessons right. that people are, uh, that parents are having to invest. Right. And it is incumbent upon us, imperative upon us, is that we take action from an association, from a section, and all the way down to the to the to the rovers that that you know. Uh, if we have rovers um, that are uh, aware that we have certain situations, we want to make sure that we control that, manage it. And we were fair to the other 98%. But so far, that's not happening. That is not happening. No, yeah. that action has not started. Uh, we are. We have not driven it, driven it down to the grassroots level, and nor do I think we are even addressing it from the back room, mm-hmm. um, from the committees. I do think that that's something that we need to look at from a sectional. Uh, we need to look at it from a state first. Uh, and then we do have the people in place. Uh, we do have the structure in place to be able to address these situations, be it local or be it state level. We do have the people in place to be able to address it. We should. Is it a situation where if parents wrote letters to their local junior comp committee members, that might help? I mean, is there something we can do as as lovers of the game and parents of the kids playing this game to get the ball rolling a little quicker? One thing that we do want, you know, one thing, everybody has an agenda, yeah. right? Everybody has an agenda. So if I write a letter today and basically say, you know, I know that the child that, the, the, the child that beat my son um, cheated my son, there's already a feeling of bitter, kind of a bitterness there. Um, so what we would like to hear is from neutral parties. I mean, the credibility actually if you really want to give credibility to where credibility belongs is for a neutral party okay. uh, a neutral party to be able to say if you see something and it's no different than what we're talking about with our school system right. uh, when we see violence when we see that someone is, uh, is, is is being frustrated or when we see someone that's basically has been uh, uh, taken some actions or has said a few things to friends or peers 
we need to report it. Mm-hmm. And it's never a, a never better of a resource than someone that's in, from a neutral pers- position. Yeah. Okay. Because if you tell me that I know, you know, I, I had your son and the juniors, uh, Morgan. If if you tell me that the Morgan's opponent uh, is a cheater. Chances are, I'm probably not going to believe you, right? Because I know that there's an agenda that you have. Sure. Um, be it right or be it wrong, I'm probably I'm human, right. right? So I'm probably not going to give it much credence. But if I know that someone else is writing in and saying that I saw Morgan playing Billy, and Billy made really three bad calls on the last when it was five four in the third set. Billy made some really bad calls, and I hate it for uh, for Morgan that, that that he lost the match. We would take that much more credible than we would if we received a letter from you. Interesting. Okay, yep. so parents, I hope you heard that, and uh, you know, I think we can help each other there. Yes. You know, if we're watching each other's children's matches and we see something that's egregious. Take a few minutes and send that email in. It doesn't take long. And, and go on parentingaces.com. I've got the email addresses for the junior comp committee members uh, or heads of the junior comp committees for each section. So it's right there, no excuse. Um, let's do that, and let's let's kind of push USTA to take more action in that regard. I think it's it would make a big difference because this is a topic that comes up over and over and over again, and it makes life miserable. Really and we does. and we what we want to do, and I know we're running out of time, but um, but we want to partner with parents. We don't want to be uh, a. A, a, a policeman. We don't want to be uh, seen as um, uh, people that show up on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday morning and we're waiting for something bad to happen so we can show our authority. We're not that kind of people. What We, we are there standing on our feet for 10 to 12 hours a day because we chose to do so. We signed up for it. Why did we sign up for it? Because we love kids. We love to be around juniors. We love to be. We we have passion for the sport, and we want to be make sure. We want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity and a fair play. And um, if you see, if you're any of your listeners see anything that is wrong or anything that um, that is is unfair, please bring it to the referee. Please bring it to the tournament director. Because obviously the tournament director oversees the entire tournament, mm-hmm. not from a rule perspective, but from an administrative or a management. They can actually have a discussion with that referee and say, guess what? On court number nine or court number 11 today, there was a coach that was basically coaching. And we need to look at that coach tomorrow and make sure that there's fairness of play. Mm-hmm. And we want to be partners with the players. We want to be partners with the parents. We do not want to be um, on the opposite side of the net. Is it true that y'all, in your little meeting before the start of the tournament, you look at the draw and say, we need to keep a close eye on this player's court and that player's court? Does that happen? I can tell you from, I, can, I can't tell you that it doesn't happen. I can't tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you that it doesn't happen. I can tell you that the, I've been refereeing for 21 years, and I have never had a conversation of that sort. Okay. I have had a situation in my mind because I'm human and I've had a situation and I've had I've been telling myself is that I know that there's a player that's going to be playing at 11 o'clock on court number 4 and I am going to be drawn to court number 4 at 11 (laughs) o'clock. 
I would. That's diplomatic. I wish I could tell you that I didn't think those things, but I do think those things because I am human. And I do know that the person on court four may have given me a hard time the last six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the seventh week it's going to be any different. Right. So I'm going to be able, I'm going to look at court number four a little closer than I would have before. Got it. But I've never been in a situation where we have collectively as a group um, addressed any names of players or parents or coaches or anything like that. I've never been in, in that situation. Okay. But uh, I wish I could tell you differently, but personally, I have. Okay. One of the things we were talking about before we went started recording this is the judgment call that an official makes on when to intervene when there's a conflict on the court. And... We, we kind of started talking about it, and then I stopped you because I wanted to do it on air. So I, w- I really would love for you to dig into that for the listeners to hear what your thought process is when you hear something happening on a court and you make your way over there and you have to make the decision of am I going to insert myself or am I going to stand on the edge of the action for a few minutes? I'm glad you asked the question because I I think it's so critical is that we allow our parents to work through issues. I think it's... Players. uh, Our players. I think (laughs) it's... Parents, too. We need help, too. Yes, yeah. But the, the players, we want to make sure that the players have every opportunity to be able to work through and have a discussion, have a collaborative discussion between the two players because they do. They they do a great job in having discussion, you know, at the net. Um, and we do know that sometimes they get confused. I get confused because sometimes, you know, when I'm playing tennis, I'm not sure if the score is 30 love or 15 15 or whether or not um, did I just serve the first serve or second serve. And so um, everyone needs help. But one thing that I teach all of my young officials when they are approaching a court and they see two people or two players that are somewhat indecisive as far as where they where they are in the match, whether it be score or whether or not there was a call. Um, you know what we what I teach is do not insert yourself, do not engage until you've given those two players, and it doesn't matter if they're ten year old or eighteen year olds. Give them every 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 opportunity to work it out because that's what life is. Life is about working out things because guess what. The policeman will not always be around. The rover or the referee will not will not always be around. The school teacher will never always be around. And mom and dad will never be around all the time. So what we need to do is we need to teach the kids to be able to work through it. Can they do it all the time? No. They can't work through it. We do know the body language. You, you referred to body language before. Is that we know that body language that when there becomes a time where there's an, there's an impasse where two players cannot agree on the score or they can't even determine whose who's serve it is, we then and only then need to insert ourselves to be able to get them through that situation. But you will see me a lot. If you watch me, I will approach the court, but I will stand there as if I didn't know really how to handle the situation but in actuality what I'm doing is I'm waiting to give the opportunity for those players to work through it and once that time and it may be 20 seconds it may be 35 seconds and I know the parents your listeners probably it feels like three minutes or going on 30 minutes 
but we try to give them every opportunity to work through those situations. If we see the body language is that they're in an impasse, we will insert ourselves and we will actually um, help them resolve it. So parents, I think it's important to really hear what Gary's saying here because I think a lot of us as, you know, innocent bystanders but whose pride and joy are on the court trying to win a tennis match, you know, our impression when you walk up as an official and just stand there and don't say a word is, oh, my God, what is he doing? He, he, what an idiot. You know, <laughs> what, what, why is he not fixing this? That's our first our first reaction, I think, a lot of the times. And, and I, I mean, it's embarrassing to say that, and it's embarrassing to admit it, but I think all of us, if we look ourselves in the mirror, will admit that, that we have had those thoughts about you officials from time to time. And, and I will say this, Lisa, is that not all of our officials um, have that approach to be able to wait to be engaged. We do have officials that are hesitant, um, they not, they're not sure when to insert themselves. Um, they're not sure, basically, what would be the ruling. What if the, uh, one, one, one player says it's 40-15, but the other player, player says it's 30-all? If I do get in that situation, I'm not sure what to do. That onus is on us as officials. That responsibility is on us. That's our failure. We have to be educated before we put officials out there into a position where your parents and your listeners are spending, they keep going back to the money, the $700, the $800, the $900 on weekend. The least thing we can do is give them the education that we have and be able to apply that education uniformly, correctly, fairly. And we do have officials that need help in that area, and we need to um, uh, identify those, and we need to help them because they're they're ambassadors just like we are. They just need a little bit of help along the way. So if, if we find ourselves as parents in a situation where there is an official, like you said, that doesn't know the rules or, you know, or makes a, a bad ruling, and we, we know we have it in front of us at, at our copy of Friend of Court that we're carrying with us at the tournament. Yes. Um, What's our recourse? Who do we go to at that point? Go to the uh, go to the actual referee. Okay. Now, the tournament referee. Go to the tournament referee. Okay. Uh, now, if the referee... Right then. Right then and there. Okay. Right then and there. If the referee is the one that basically you're frustrated with, and you're, you're, you're basically you think the referee has made a bad decision, you can take it to what... And every tournament has this. You have an appeals committee that's made up of three, at least a minimum of three people. In that appeals committee... Guess who's not included as part of that appeals committee? The referee. The referee is not a part of the appeals committee. Why? Because we don't want any type of uh, uh, conflict of interest. Okay. I can tell you this. I've made a ruling on a satellite site, and I was overruled. Did I get upset? No, I didn't get upset. Was I disappointed? Yes, I was a little disappointed. But at the same time, I want there to be fairness and, and application of the rules. Right. They felt like that the ruling that I get that I gave at the time was not in fairness of both players. And rightfully so, I, I respected that. But what we need to do is we need to bring it to the attention, even to the tournament director. Okay. Because the tournament director can then engage the, the appeals committee. Okay. And that does not include the referee. Got it. And at that point in time, they can then rule on that to determine whether or not we need to uh, make a different decision. Got it. Yeah. All right. I have one last question because we are really out of time. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, Last question. Do you think there will come a time where we allow coaching in junior tennis? Yes, I do. 
I do think it's going to be a situation where we're seeing it already in the in the professional level. Uh, we're seeing it at the college level. We're also seeing. It, um, uh, uh, I think we're seeing that. I, I'm not a. I, I'm really kind of torn between coaching because I like to see juniors trying to work it out issues themselves. I like to see juniors that are able to uh, analyze the situation, determine what the next move is without having their parents or what, how, without having their coach there. I do think we're going to get into coaching. I don't think it's going to be in the next two to three years. I think it's going to be over the next four to five years. And uh, whether or not it's going to be beneficial, I just hope that it's not going to be an overbearing situation. I hope that we're still going to allow the, the players um, some um, some room to think, analyze, process, and be able to act on their own um, uh, uh, type of strategy and not just the strategy of someone else. Will it make your job as an official harder or easier? It will make our I will make our issue exactly a little more difficult, mainly because, um, as you all know, the coaches, once you give them the opportunity to coach and once you give the parents an opportunity to parent, um, there's a line in the sand that is drawn where they can't cross. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to be on the edge of their seat waiting for that line to come closer to them and they're going to be wanting to cross that line more than more than not and that's where we're going to have to basically and I can only picture in my mind a bunch of horses in a in a gate that's trying to get out yes so I know that there's a there's that picture in my mind where uh, you have 18 horses and basically you're still holding the gate and eventually got to let them out and I know that the parents and the coaches are really just chomping at the bit to try to get to their player and tell them to keep hitting to the backhand side. That's where the weakness is. And um, But uh, there's going to be a situation where it's going to be a fine, fine line where the officials are really going to have to d- d- discern where, when they cross the line. I know I said one more question, but now I have one more question. Okay. <laughs> you've been doing this 21 years. Yes. What's the biggest change you've seen in that time period? The biggest change I've seen is basically the uh, the, the parenting. Um, I've seen the fact that uh, we have become more involved as parents. Uh, and you're a parent yourself. Let's, I'm a parent, let's put yes, that out yes, there. So, I, yes, yes, I am. I'm a, I'm a, I, my son is 25, and when he was going through AAU ball and basketball, when he was going through uh, high school basketball, um, one thing that my, I learned very well, I uh, learned very quickly, is my AAU coach uh, for my son told all of our parents this, is that if you want to coach your son, you can, but not on my team. (laughs) And I wanted him to be a part of this team. Mm -hmm. As a part of making a decision for him to be a part of that team, I also released my ability, or not my ability, but I released my authority to be able to coach my son. And but let me encourage your parents. I mean, your, your listeners and your parents and your coaches out there. Your coaches have been in this industry for a long, long time. They know exactly what they're doing, and the parents know what they're doing. But can I say this? That when they take that long ride home after a loss, give them, give the children, give their kids about a two-hour break of doing nothing but positivity. Um, it's the Wayne Bryan approach, right? Yes. Take yes. them out for a milkshake. Take them out for a milkshake, <laughs> but try to be positive And then because emotions are running high. And believe me, there's no one in that car that wanted to win more than your son or your daughter. And just give them that, um, that downtime to be able to debrief 
and be able to come down off that emotional high or emotional low. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, it's um, it's it, that's one thing that I would ask for parents is that is just be a little bit more patient on that ride home. Because believe me, I'm a parent, and I really want to just really give my more than two cents right. to my son. Right. But I know that that two cents is not really welcome. Right, right. Well, that's great advice. Gary Lane, thanks so much for making the trip down here. I enjoyed it's it. It's a pleasure to see you again. Good it's to been see a you. long time. And yeah, it's. Um, I, I think we need to do another one of these because I, I feel like I'm going to go listen to this and then I'm going to say, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask him ABC. So we're going to have to do it again. We have a lot of competent officials. Um, and I know that some yeah, but of you're your... the first one that's reached out to me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we have a lot of we have a lot of competent officials in the state of Georgia and it's in all the different southern states: South Carolina, Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana. We have a lot of different types of really good officials, and uh, I would just welcome all of our officials to get engaged through this type of media uh, and get exposure to be able to become a friend of a parent, become a friend of a player. Uh, We're all in this together. We're trying to strive for equality. We're trying to strive for fairness. Um, And let me encourage all of my peer officials uh, to, to get engaged. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.